it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll in the second hour of our three-hour tour on this uh, Labor Day 2021. We spent the last hour sort of relating to Labor Day, talking about small business uh, resources and challenges with um, Maggie uh, Ference from Huntington Bank. But we're going to shift gears for the next couple hours and uh, uh, sort of um, as a, an acknowledgement, I guess is the best way to put it, of uh, Rosh Hashanah, which begins at sundown tonight. And uh, we start that coming up in just a couple of minutes with Deborah Dash Moore. She is professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan and part of a very interesting um, historical uh, encyclopedia uh, called the uh, Posen Library. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about that and a bunch more. And then coming up a little bit later, we'll uh, talk with a um, prominent businessman and uh, thought leader in the Jewish community um, and author of a new book called Conspiracy U, um, a case study and he talks about anti-semitism and it's a very interesting conversation scott shea is his name but uh we're gonna rely on uh, some lighter moments during the next couple hours from tom lehrer and uh, from alan sherman and we start with tom lehrer welcome to this presentation of the comedy spotlight on the tom sumner program 
I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea. I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis, a charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me. Those eastern winters, I can't endure them. So every year I pack my gear and come out here till Purim, Rosh Hashanah, I spend in Arizona. And Yom Kippur way down in Mississippi. But in December, there's just one place for me. Amid the California flora, I'll be lighting my menorah like a baby in his cradle. I'll be playing with my dreidel, spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica by the sea. I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea. I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis, a charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me. Those eastern winters, I can't endure them, so every year I pack my gear and come out here to Purim, Rosh Hashanah, I spend in Arizona. And Yom Kippur way down in Mississippi But in December there's just one place for me Amid the California flora I'll be lighting my menorah Like a baby in his cradle I'll be playing with my dreidel Here's the Judas Maccabeus Boy if he could only see us Spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica By the sea This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. TomSumnerProgram.com. The TomSumnerProgram.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, my guest this hour specializes in 20th century American Jewish history, which is timely since uh, Rosh Hashanah begins at sundown tonight. Um, she is a professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan, and she joins me now by phone, Deborah Dash Moore. Deborah, welcome to the show. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Tom. And and. Do I say happy Rosh Hashanah? How, how, what, what is the appropriate greeting for that? Yeah, actually, Happy New Year. Uh, Shana Tova, um, is, uh, that's the Hebrew version, um, is uh, very much appropriate. It's the same greeting, you might say, for you know the uh, January 1st, New Year, but the character of the New Year is a little different in Jewish tradition. Still, it's a happy time. It's the beginning of a um, of a new year, and people bring their hopes and wishes for a good year. 
um, a year of sweetness, a year of health, um, a year of happiness. Deborah, I mentioned that you specialize in 20th century American Jewish history. And, and I want to try and understand what's significant about that and, and what caused you to want to specialize in that. But let me ask this first, and then we'll just go where it goes. Have Jews fared better in the U.S. post-World War II than in other countries that they may have relocated to? Oh, definitely they have fared um, better in the United States um, in comparison to other countries of the diaspora. Um, when you think of you know, the Soviet Union or France or Britain or Australia or many countries in Latin America, uh, the comparison that's usually drawn, however, is between Jews living in the United States post-World War II and Jews living in what becomes the State of Israel in 1948, right? which is not diaspora, right? That is um, the Jewish state. And so when people think about those years um, following World War II and into our current century, they think about the United States and American Jews as sort of the representative diaspora country and Israel, of course, as the Jewish state. And what's it like to live in Israel as compared to living in the United States? However, to go back to your question, if you compare the United States to other places where Jews were living in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, whatever, um, there's no question. Jews in the United States really flourished in those years. Well, let's let's talk about that. Um, 1947 and the establishment of Israel. What determined who would go there and and who would settle in other parts of the world? So that's a really good question, and um, it relates to the outcome of World War II and what were called displaced persons or DPs people who uh, survived the war, Jews who survived the war, many of them um, in the Soviet Union, not very many, um, let's say, in Poland, right? Over 90% of, of Polish Jews were murdered by the Nazis. But they, these Jews had fled eastward, they come back, and then the question is, where do they go? Um, and Zionists had been working for um, decades, many decades, to try to build um, a Jewish state uh, in the land of Israel. And they, um, they very much wanted to welcome uh, those survivors um, as well as other Jews throughout the world, Jews in, in Arab countries. Um, uh, they wanted to welcome Jews from the United States as well, but there were relatively few Jews um, who were uh, Zionists in the United States in the years prior to World War II, it expand, the numbers expand after the war, but they uh, include support for this new Jewish state in Israel, um, but they don't necessarily include the decision to actually go and settle there. Some Jews from the U.S., of course, do go. 
um, really committed Jews um, uh, from Zionist movements, but most of them do not. Deborah, can can I add something or, or ask something that, sure. that may be a little parenthetical? But um, can you help me understand better what being a Zionist means? Oh, <laughs> sure, I can try. So Zionism is a movement that's associated with a, um, a man named Theodore Herzl, um, who was a playwright and a journalist and who has this vision um, in the end of the 19th century when a man named Alfred Dreyfus, who was a, um, uh, uh, an officer in the French army, is falsely accused of treason. And Herzl is struck by the venomous hatred uh, against Jews by, by the French, um, not just against Dreyfus, but against all Jews. And he comes to the conclusion that Jews really are a nation and they're an anomaly. They have no place of their own um, in Europe. And what they need is a state. And so he calls the first Zionist Congress in 1897, and Jews come from around the world, including the U.S. Um, and then there are lots of versions of Zionism that grow up. There are versions of Zionism that emerge that aren't focused on a state, that say, yes, what we need is the uh, reimagination of Jews as a people. Well, there's a, a rabbi uh, in the United States named Mordechai Kaplan, and he, he talks about a kind of spiritual Zionism. He says, Jews are a people in the United States. They live in two civilizations. They live in an American civilization, and they live in a Jewish civilization. And Zionism is a way of expressing their Jewish peoplehood. Then there are Jews who are Zionists and say, well, we're socialists. And uh, what it means, we bring socialism and Zionism together, and we're interested in creating a kind of socialist utopia in Palestine, and that's the birth of the kibbutz. And uh, so uh, there are really a variety of different kinds of Zionists. Ultimately, the what are called political Zionists, the ones who say, no, the goal of Zionism should be an establishment of a state, are the ones who... Um, achieve their goal, um, and uh, the other forms of Zionism tend to be um, forgotten, although recently people have begun to, to bring those back a bit and to recognize that there are a lot of ways of, uh, there were a lot of ways of being a Zionist, and there can again be a lot of ways of being a Zionist that don't necessarily embrace the political dimensions of Zionism. Deborah, is that, a, is that useful? <laughs> well, it's complicated, Tom. But it but it helps me understand that it's complicated. That it, it that it yes. isn't one thing, and and That's that right. it's worthy of more exploration. More about American Jewish history with Deborah Dash Moore from the University of Michigan. Straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about American Jewish history with Deborah Dash Moore from the University of Michigan. Straight ahead. Deborah, you visit New York City frequently to see friends and family, but you've written about New York Jews. Um, in, in your first book, At Home in America, Second Generation New York Jews, um, and the phrase... And more recently, actually. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah the, <laughs> of ahead, course. Yeah. Um, but I just, I mentioned that one because of the phrase New York Jews, because I've heard that uh, used as kind of a political designation. Political or pejorative? No, political. Political. Meaning okay. New York Jews uh-huh. have a certain lean to their politics. Ah, okay, okay. So New York Jews, um, for many years, certainly up into the 1950s, um, constituted around 40% of American Jews. Um, So it was the largest, it still is, the largest Jewish city um, in Jewish history, certainly the largest Jewish city in the United States. Jews made up... um, around 30% of the population. They were the largest single ethnic group in the city. So you can imagine they they had a big impact on the city itself. Uh, and the politics, their politics, in the context of New York City um, emerged from these large numbers and especially from the fact that many of the immigrants who came um, embraced socialism. Um, they suffered uh, in terrible conditions, living conditions um, in slums. They suffered terrible exploitation in the garment industry, mostly exploitation by fellow Jews. Um, they uh, struggled against uh, anti-Semitism, and socialism seemed to be the proper answer. Um, to uh, creating a better society, more just society. Uh, and so since politics is local, <laughs> they, <laughs> they elected a socialist uh, congressman, Meyer London. Um, and eventually, with the New Deal, many of them liked uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And so in 1936, they create something called the American Labor Party so that they could vote for him, but not pull the lever, the Democratic Party lever, because they really disliked the, the, the Tammany machine uh, that was uh, mostly dominated by Irish uh, uh, Americans at that time, the Democratic Party machine. And that tradition has continued. Um, uh, it, it has taken different forms. Uh, after the American Labor Party, there was something called the Liberal Party, for many decades, um, you now have the Working Families Party um, in New York. So this kind of third-party activism um, has remained in New York, although, of course, by now, lots of Jews are no longer immigrants. They're not even the children of immigrants. They're often only the grandchildren of immigrants living in New York. And there's also in New York City now a very large contingent of um Orthodox Jews, and their politics is definitely not socialist. 
right? Um, they tend to be supporters um, either of mainstream Democratic Party or on national levels of uh, Republican um, candidates. So, so it's, it's changed, but that's the root of it. The root of it is the embrace of, of socialism as a, a solution to the exploitation of immigrants, exploitation of capitalism. It's not necessarily a path that Jews took elsewhere as much, but when you had so many of them in New York, um, they could really make a difference, and they elected socialists. Yeah. That that um, raises an interesting question. Um, how do contemporary American Jews identify more as American or more as Jewish? Well, the answer to that is it depends. <laughs> now you sound like an economist, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, there's a lot of variety among American Jews, right? Um, and uh, and they debate among themselves, right? I mean, one of the things I, I'm I'm the um, editor in chief of a of a multi-volume closing library of Jewish culture and civilization, and one of the the beauties of this multi-volume uh, anthology is that it includes excerpts uh, from Jewish um, culture uh, across many, many um, centuries. I mean, starting with the, the biblical period and and then uh, including up through the, the modern period of the 20th century. Uh, and what you find there is lots of disagreements among Jews about um, what does it mean to be Jewish, right? What's involved with that? Um, and we've included in this volume Jews who um, identify, in a sense, as Jewish through their rejection of Jewish religion, for example, um, through their criticism of, of Jewish life, um, rather than through any embrace or celebration. So, and that's true, of course, among American Jews as well. I was looking, because Rosh Hashanah is coming, um, I was looking at some of the um, items in the anthology, and I came across one, um, a, a survival kit for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that was speaking to American Jews saying, okay, you know, I, 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 I don't understand Hebrew. The services, you know, religious services are very long. How am I going to, you know, manage three hours of, of services, which is what uh, standard Rosh Hashanah religious services. And, you know, he says, it's okay, you don't understand. You know, God listens to prayers in any language that you speak. Um, linger over a prayer. Um, don't worry if you fall, quote, behind. You know, they'll announce the pages and you can catch up. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that speaks to a certain cluster of American Jews. Now, do they feel more American and less Jewish? Maybe, right? Um, this is, you know, someone trying to, to, to speak to these Jews who are often called, you know, three-day-a-year Jews because they come for Rosh Hashanah and then, you know, which is a two-day holiday, and then they come for Yom Kippur, 
although a lot of them no longer do the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Christians but, have the two-timer version of that. Uh, right, okay. <laughs> Christmas and Easter, they're two-timers. That's it. That's um, right, okay. But these are really close together because Yom Kippur comes 10 days after Rosh right. Hashanah. Right, so you get one, and then boom, and Yom Kippur, of course, is a fast day, and it's you know not much fun. Um, yeah. Were American Jews more welcomed in New York City than they might have been in other parts of the country? Is that why there's such a concentration there, or is that just point um, of entry? It was point of entry, which was really important. Yes. So r- roughly three quarters of Jews who came through Ellis Island just stayed. Right? You know, you're here. There are other Jews here. You can get a job. You can find a place to live. Often you may have relatives. Um, why bother to spend extra money on a train ticket to come to Detroit? <laughs> right? right. Um, yeah. So I think once you had um, 100,000 Jews living on the Lower East Side, which is what you had by the, the end of the uh, uh, 19th century, um, it was, you know, it was comfortable. There were, there were all these, you didn't need to know English, right? You could manage in Yiddish, which is the language most of the Jews who came spoke. Um, even if you didn't speak Yiddish, you spoke Ladino or one of the other Jewish languages. You could also find a, a whole cluster of um, uh, kinsmen there. Uh, so I think that was why they stayed in New York. Um, now, of course, you know, a quarter of them left and went somewhere else, but um, most of them stayed. That well, I, I, I bring that up because I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite Groucho Marx quotes about, I wouldn't join a club that would have me as a member. <laughs> and and right. we all know that, that, that line, and and, yeah. and and what a fun jab that that really was when you pick it all apart. Um, uh-huh. but, but what about uh, that um, that anti-Semitism that immigrants of all types faced at first yes. when they come to the they U.S.? They face prejudice. That's correct. That's right. So you know, it's a. As I, there was anti-Semitism in New York. Um, that affected um, those Jews who were trying to um, assimilate and integrate into American society more than it affected Jews who were um, immigrants. But I'll give you an example that affected immigrants. Um, you had, in other words, people who, who, who weren't immigrants wanted to, wanted to go to college. Um, uh, they wanted to... Uh, and, and they faced discrimination in college. They wanted to move into new neighborhoods, and they, they faced discrimination about some neighborhoods. But immigrants didn't face those kinds of problems. Um, however, let's say you were a carpenter, right, and you wanted to join the carpenters' union. Well, as a Jew, uh, you found they wouldn't take you in. So Jewish carpenters and glazers and plumbers and stuff in the building trades, ended up creating their own, what they called alteration units, because they weren't, they weren't able to get jobs in new construction. They had to, to work on altering buildings. Right? Um, uh, and 
that lasted, you know, up into the, the early 20s when things, 1920s, when things began to change. So uh, the, the discrimination against Jews was, was real. Um, New York State passes a Civil Rights Act back in 1913 as a way of addressing that discrimination as well as discrimination against African Americans. It's not exactly enforced, <laughs> but it is uh, an expression of um, political concern for uh, the effects of discrimination. How did Miami and Los Angeles become known as the Golden Cities? Oh, well, that's a post-World War II story, right? Because the war, the war reaches many, many homes and, and you know, over half a million Jews enlist in the war. Um, this is you know, they, they want to fight for the United States, and they certainly want to fight against um, Nazi Germany. Uh, and the war um, brings them out to these cities. I mean, you know, uh, a quarter of the uh, Air Force um, uh, recruits who are in officer training go down to, um, they train on the beaches of Miami. Um, and people discover, oh, Miami. And, and the same is true if, you know, if you were in the going to be shipped out to the Pacific, you, you, you left from, um, often from L.A., sometimes from San Francisco. Uh, and so it opened up the eyes of these soldiers to these cities, which they really were not aware of. And uh, as a result, they... Um, chose after the war to um, settle there. Um, in, in the book I wrote about that, one of the guys I, I write who's from the Bronx tells, tells the military, he's in the army, that um, he, he, uh, he now lives in, in uh, Los Angeles so that they will um, discharge him in L.A., and when he gets out, he tells his wife, okay, now you've got to come out here. <laughs> um, she's back in the Bronx, right? And, and eventually he brings, you know, like 18 members of his family there. I mean, it's just, you know, the sun was shining all the time. Uh, that's, this was before smog. Uh, and it seemed like, um, you know, a kind of um, paradise, certainly a, a golden place uh, for compared to the, the grimy, dirty New York City that they were used to. Now, you made reference to the Posen Library, and I want to talk about that, um, what it is and, and how it came about. So it, it is a 10-volume anthology of um, excerpts from uh, a vast array of Jewish uh, sources, uh, beginning from the biblical uh, period and running up to 2005. It came about um, through the initiative of Felix Posen, uh, who uh, was a, um, well, actually an immigrant himself, comes to the United States um, in the 1930s, is educated here in the U.S., um, goes on to uh, become a, a very successful 
um, businessman and then decides that one of the things that he didn't have in his education, which was a traditional Jewish education, was any sense of the breadth and diversity of Jewish culture. And he brings together scholars from Israel, from the United States, uh, to talk about how one could make available in English um, all of this material. Uh, so it's it's a vast translation project as well. I think we have things from everything from Amharic to uh, Yiddish, right? Uh, translated nineteen different languages, uh, and it's also available because of when it was started in um, digital form. So if you go to look at Posen PosenLibrary.com, you'll be led to uh, a site where you can gain access for free if you register um, uh, to all of these uh, resources. Half of, half of the volumes are published, half of the, the material is load, loaded up onto this uh, digital website. Digital Library. And, and it's great. It's, it's got all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and, and yeah, and the, the full title is um, The Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. Have I got that right? That's right. You got that right, yes. And, yes. and that seems, it's, it's fascinating to me because it's in some ways like an encyclopedia and in, and in some ways like this, this historic journal. Um, and it's it's encyclopedic, yeah, in scope, in, but yeah. it's not. But it gives you it gives you the original sources, right? Um, so you know, if you want to if you want to read um, uh, what Jewish women wrote, um, you'll get um, sources from Jewish women. Um, if you want to read about what some famous rabbis wrote, there's a, you know, there are selections, let's say, from Abraham Joshua Heschel, which is a very famous American um, uh, rabbi uh, in the 20th century. You can read what he writes. Um, it, it covers all kinds of things. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, Deborah, I'm not trying to put more work on you, but you said there are 10 volumes, and it runs yes. from biblical times through 2005. Is it, is it open-ended? Will there be a, a volume 11? Uh, at the moment, no. We're working really <laughs> hard to get all the other, uh, finish the, the remaining volumes. Uh, so um, we have half of them done. We have an... Um, uh, a sixth volume uh, coming out in 2022. Uh, yeah, but uh, uh, first, first we got to get them all out <laughs> before we think about an uh, eleventh. Uh, yes. Well, it's it's a it's a tremendous uh, undertaking and a tremendous project, and uh, it it's it's fascinating, and I encourage people to uh, explore and find out more about it and, and dig in and, and uh, learn what it has to offer. Yeah, I should add also that it has a lot of visual material, you know, art and, and um, uh, images of, of um, synagogues and uh, photography, just uh, it, there's some beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, yeah. 
And, of course, the pictures are there for those people that don't want to sit through three-hour religious ceremonies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there's, there's, one, uh, there's one wonderful photograph by um, Robert Frank, a, a Jewish photographer who uh, grew up in Switzerland and then came to the States. Um, and it, he calls it the Yom Kippur East River. It's a photograph taken uh, of... Um, of the backs of uh, Orthodox Jewish men with one young boy sort of in the foreground, and they're praying. Um, it actually is mislabeled because um, Frank was not a, a, uh, a particularly learned Jew. I mean, he knew about these high, you know, holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, um, but it's it's a, a picture actually of a practice called Tashlich of um, throwing one's sins symbolically into flowing water through by throwing breadcrumbs into it and praying uh, there, uh, and it's it's a great, a very powerful, beautiful photograph. Um, if you if you go uh, go to the website and you you know uh, type in Kippur, uh, K I P P U R, you know it'll it'll pop up, um, and you'll see this uh, contemporary. 20th century New York vision of um, uh, Jews, uh, Jews at prayer outdoors right, by the East River. Well, my guest, uh, in, in honor of uh, Rosh Hashanah, which begins at sundown this evening, is uh, professor of history and Judaic studies at the uh, University of Michigan, Deborah Dashmore. Deborah, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. Um, it's under the auspices of the University of Michigan. Um, and I guess, you know, I haven't tried. I should try. Uh, if you, you know, go and Google that, you'll come up with um, the possibility of going to my website. Um, the uh, It's got a, a longish name. It's site, S-I-T-E-S dot L-S-A dot umich, U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. And then these forward slash, Deborah Dash Moore, all lowercase, all one word and forward slash. And you'll come to me and I have a photograph on it. I actually, various stuff. I actually yeah. uh, found a link to it um, simply by Googling you, Deborah Dash Moore. Oh, you did get to it? Oh, good, because I haven't tried that. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm glad to know. Thank you. Well, Deborah, thank you for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work. Thanks very much, Tom. Good to talk. Take care. Again, that was uh, Deborah Dashmore, uh, Professor of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan, who specializes in 20th century American Jewish history. And we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. <laughs> Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Show
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I sell a line of plastics And I travel on the road And I have a case of samples Which, believe me, is a load Every night a strange cafe A strange hotel And then Early in the morning I am on the road again When the season's over And my lonesome journey ends That's the only time I see My family and my friends I drive up Ocean Parkway And before I stop the car My ma leans out the window And she hollers Here we are Shake hands with your Uncle Max, my boy And here is your sister, Cheryl And here is your cousin, Isabel That's Irving's oldest girl And you remember the Tishman twins Gerald and Jerome We all came out to greet you and to wish you welcome home. Meet Marowitz, Barrowitz, Handelman, Shandelman, Sperber and Gerber and Steiner and Stone. Moskowitz, Lupowitz, Aarons and Behrens, Kleinman and Feynman and Friedman and Cohn. Smolowitz, Wallowitz, Teitelbaum, Mandelbaum, Levin, Levinsky, Levine and Levi. Brumberger, Schlumberger, Minkus and Pinkus and Stein with an E-I and Stein with a Y. Shake hands with your Uncle Sal, mine boy And here is your brother, Sid And here is your cousin, Yetta Who expects another kid Whenever you're on the road, mine boy Wherever you may roam We'll all be here When you come back To wish you her wheelbarrow through streets that are narrow her barrow is narrow her hips are too wide so wherever she wheels it the neighborhood feels it her girdle keeps scraping the homes on each side in Dublin's fair city Where girls are so pretty My Molly stands out Cause she weighs 18 stone That's 256 pounds I don't mind her fat But It's not only that But She's Cockeyed and muscle-bound Molly Malone 
man, his name is Lang, and he has a neon sign. And Mr. Lang is very old, so they call it Old Lang Sign. Oh, what have you done, Billy Sal, Billy Sal? Oh, what have you done, Charming Billy? You took almost every cent from the U.S. government, which you spent on fertilizer, which is silly. All day, all night, Cary Grant. That's all I hear from my wife is Cary Grant. What can he do that I can't? Big deal, big star, Cary Grant. Oh, the moon is bright tonight upon the car wash. So I'm having my Volkswagen washed again. But the way things go with me, the way my luck runs Just as soon as they're finished, it will rain <laughs> On top of old Smokey, all covered with hair Of course I'm referring to Smokey the Bear Here's a famous old folk song that you all know entitled Aura Lee Every time you take vaccine, take it orally. As you know, the other way is more painfully. My grandfather's clock was the best ever made by the Timex company. Just like the clock John Cameron Swayze displayed last night on the old TV. Oh, it works underwater so perfectly, and it still makes a ticking sound, which my grandfather tried only this afternoon, and that's how the old man drowned. Do not make a stingy sandwich pile the cold cuts high. Customers should see salami coming through the ride. Oh, I diet all day and I diet all night. It's enough to drive me bats. Got no gravy or potatoes, cause the whole refrigerator's full of polyunsaturated fats. Fairly well, Metrical, and the others of that ilk. Let the diet start tomorrow, cause today I'll drown my sorrow in a double malted milk. Oh, when you go to the delicatessen star, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. I repeat what I just said before. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Oh, buy the corned beef if you must. The pickled herring you can trust. And the locks puts you in orbit. A-OK. -okay. But that big hunk of liverwurst has been there since October 1st. And today is the 23rd of May. 
So when you go to the delicatessen star, don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. It'll make your insides awful sore. Don't buy the liverwurst. Don't buy the liverwurst. Sit together watching TV every single night, munching popcorn from a dish while observing Dorothy Gish. Dorothy Gish, Dorothy Gish, what a dish, what a dish. Yetta couldn't have it better. Their TV set has remote control, so they both can stay in bed with Frankenstein and Mr. Ed. Stay in bed, Dorothy Gish, what a dish. of Art Linkletta, and they love to sing along with Mitch. They just found in TV Guide reruns of December Bride. December Bride. TV Guide. Mr. Ed. Stay in bed. What a dish. What a dish. They're big fans of Gunsmoke and Bonanza, and Ben Casey and Dr. Jim Kildare, and third reruns of Millionaire, and fourth reruns of Yogi Bear. Yogi Bear, TV Guide, stay in bed, what a dish. Alan Yetta love to watch Loretta when she enters through her fancy door. They just love the real McCoys, Walter Cronkite and the Bowery Boys. Real McCoys, Yogi Bear, TV Guide, stay in bed, what a dish. Watching Huntley Brinkley and College Bowl on Sunday afternoons While they both watch Meet the Press, Yetta yearns for Elliot Ness, Elliot Ness. Meet the Press, Boys. Real McCoys, Yogi Bear, TV Guide, Stay in Bed, What a Dish an operetta. Leonard Bernstein told them what they saw. They both shouted, Hail Bernstein. Then they switched to What's My Line? What's My Line? Meet the Press. Real McCoys. Yogi Bear. TV Guide. Stay in bed. What a dish. Yetta, something that upset her. He said, dear, our picture tube has blown. Yetta answered, woe is me, for tonight we shall not see. What's my line? Meet the press. Real McCoys. Yogi Bear. TV Guide. Stay in bed. What a dish. television set. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 